What's up, guys? This is John Micah. Hey, everybody. This is James. All right, quick. Guess what number I'm thinking of? 1,324. Wow. Nope. Ah, dang it. 20. <laughs> no. Welcome to Rock in the Hard Place. I thought for sure it would be 20 because this is our 20th anniversary year and we have the 20 EP that came out not too long Mm. ago. If you haven't listened to the 20 EP, you definitely should. He's got a point, folks. If you haven't listened to the 20 EP, you definitely should. In case you haven't and you've been hiding under a rock as far as Cutlass (laughs) News is concerned, we'll just recap real quick. 20 years ago, our first album came out. And we redid the top three songs uh, from streaming platforms from that album, which were Your Touch, Run, and Tonight. And we gave them a completely fresh take, like brand new arrangements, brand new guitar parts, and John Micah sang new vocals. It was really fun, don't you think? It was a super fun project to kind of bring those songs back to life in the modern era. And I I honestly really like the way they turned out. I think they turned out really, really good. So Yeah. Um, Me too. And I think I think we honored the original songs too, because that's a pet peeve of mine when you like yes. can't even sing along with a song when they when a band redoes it, you're like, ah, that's not how it goes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think we honored the original songs but made them sound a lot better. I uh, agree. That was that was one of the goals from the beginning. Hey, so actually the number I was thinking of was eighty eight. Oh wow. Yeah. Which that is very symmetrical. It's very symmetrical and Incidentally, I guess I should bring this up and tell fans a little known James fact here. Uh, 88, the reason I was thinking of it was because uh, I have a, a condition that's called synesthesia, where um, when I think of numbers, I see them as colors in my head. So like if I'm looking at a piece of paper, like a receipt, and there's numbers written on it, you know, usually that's printed out in black ink so it's not like the color magically transforms in front of my eyes or anything (laughs) but ever since i was little little before i even really understood numbers and math or anything um each of the individual numerals zero through nine has always had its own color each of those numbers has its own color and so to me eight is red and so 88 was red red you know so anyway i was thinking of 88 your first guess was awesome. What'd you say? 1,300 something? 24, I think. I've already forgotten Ooh. it. Okay, yeah. so that's white, green. Two is the color of light colored wood. And then four is blue. So there you go. Okay. That's the number coding system wow. for me. Interesting. <laughs> so I think 88 should be Ferrari red, like a specific shade oh, of red because it's, it's red, red with red. Yes. <laughs> it's like extra red. Oh, yeah. It's like well, Ferrari eight, red. Yeah, eight is basically to me and other people that have synesthesia would see different colors and stuff like that. But eight to me is actually like straight up Ferrari red. Like, So if I would have answered your question with what what number am I thinking of? And I said red, I would have kind of been right. That would have been so meta. (laughs) If you you knew enough what I was thinking to quote the color to me, I would have been like, pretty blown away <laughs> that's pretty amazing uh what number am i thinking of red 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 <laughs> wow that's funny hey so uh random fact for the day uh today we're recording this episode and it's actually national pickle day 
um, it seems like most days on the calendar are some sort of random arbitrary holiday nowadays. But today, as we record this, is National Pickle Day. And I happen to be kind of obsessed with pickles. Um, and I recently reached out to this awesome pickle company called Grillo's Pickles, and I told them how much I love them. The listeners can't see this, but uh, if we show a video of this at some point, I'm holding up a, a sticker sheet from Grillo's. They sent me this cool like gift bag that had some cool swag in it and some uh, free pickles uh, in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So but this podcast is not brought to you by Grillo's. James just not- genuinely, this is how much James loves pickles. <laughs> Yes. And let me just say, not yet, not yet yet. brought to you by Grillo's Pickles, but we'll see. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah. So actually there's kind of a funny story as to why I got obsessed with pickles. So uh, during pandemic, I would say we all kind of like picked up a bunch of weird hobbies. One of mine was gardening. I wanted to like grow beautiful flowers and stuff in our backyard, which is kind of a small backyard. So I kind of just wanted it to be like a peaceful space with like cool flowers and like rocks and stuff like that. Um, but one of my other kind of random interests came about when I saw this movie starring Seth Rogen and it's called An American Pickle. And it's a pretty funny movie. He basically plays uh, two characters that are both himself kind of, and I don't want to give it away, but like one of his characters basically falls into a vat of pickles and is preserved for like a hundred years or something. (laughs) And then he wakes up and, and emerges from his pickle tomb and he's in New York city and he um, is wandering around and doesn't know what to do, but basically he gets famous by making these, the most delicious pickles. And I was watching this movie and I was like, dude, I should go home and try and make pickles. And so I did. And it was a disaster. I, I made the saltiest pickles you could ever imagine. And they were so gross. So The reason I love Grillo's so much is because I went on this hunt to try and find like really good pickles and I bought all these different kinds. Yeah. And they won the taste test. They're like, perfect. They're exactly what I would make if I could make good pickles and I can't. (laughs) Well, there you go. Turns out I definitely can't. But you could grow cucumbers. I could probably grow some cucumbers, but you got to grow pickling cucumbers. That's one of the oh, other secrets. Special, you don't just use regular cucumbers like a moron. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Things I did not know. Cucumber facts. Cuca- hashtag <laughs> cucumber hard facts. place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, All the so things it, you're going to learn by listening to this podcast. That's right. So in honor helpful. of National Pickle Day, I just want to give them a shout out. Thank you so much for the cool stuff and for the free pickles. I love them. Also, speaking of hashtag turkey facts, since we were just making a joke about hashtag cucumber yeah, facts or hashtag from our pre- facts. previous episode, throwback you know, here. That's right. Some of you guys came through with some interesting facts. I've seen some funny comments, but uh, a friend of mine, uh, a buddy of mine named Sam Mears, who's a, a youth pastor here in Portland, um, he sent me a text the other day. Him and his wife were listening to that episode, and he said, Hey, Claire wanted me to share this with you. So here's a, here's a pickle, uh, a pickle fact. Gosh, I'm so. <laughs> now we're getting up. confused. Yeah. Pickles and turkeys. Here's a turkey fact. Turkey here's, fact. All right. Yeah, here's a turkey. I'm excited. Fact from our friends. She says the turkey 
was almost our national bird. That's an interesting fact. Mm. She says that Benjamin Franklin preferred it because the bald eagle is a scavenger. The turkey finds its own food. Apparently, that was more important to him to represent the American spirit. So, turkey was almost our national bird. I'm gonna I'm gonna argue that point though because I, I was going watched, to as well. <laughs> I have watched an eagle swoop down and snatch a fish out of the river or the lake. Both I've seen both, and it's that's right, quite impressive. It's pretty up cool. in uh, up in Lake Clark National Park when we go up to Port Allsworth every summer. Yeah, there's this one spot where we go fishing for pike. Where like literally right above us in this tree maybe 15 feet, 20 feet up above us in the air, there's always this bald eagle sitting there. Now, yeah. he here's the thing. I've seen these eagles swoop down and grab a fish out of the water, but I've also seen them try to scavenge our fish that we're fishing for. <laughs> so they are kind of scavengers too. Yeah, they've definitely eyed our fish a few times. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I actually, one of the most impressive things I ever saw with a bald eagle, I was actually, I think I was on the Rogue River. I was rafting in Southern oh, Oregon. cool. Yeah, the and, Rogue uh, River in Southern yep. Oregon, kind of where and you I grew was, up, right? Yep, yep. And we were we were whitewater, like the, uh, there's like these inflatable kayaks that we take down the river a lot of times, and so I think I was in one of those. Yeah. And uh, this bald eagle swoops down and snatches a fish out of the river, and as it comes up, wow, two two osprey attack <laughs> it, like literally dive bomb right onto it, wow, and just like attack the eagle. The eagle drops the fish and you know this is midair dogfighting happening here in yeah. front of me yeah yeah the Top eagle drops style. the fish like they knock it out of his out of its talons or whatever and as the as the osprey are like swooping in the eagle tucks its wings does a barrel roll and goes into a dive catches this the is fish. like top gun Oh, it was insane. Yeah. I felt like I was watching Top Gun, but it was birds. It was yeah. crazy. <laughs> the the eagle dives, catches the fish before it hits the water no and way. takes off. And the and the two osprey were just like, uh, we can't we can't wow. do that. Wow. <laughs> they just they just buzzed out. They were like, ah, we tried. They that got eagle's... stage fright. Yeah. And I was like, that's our national bird right there. Yeah. That thing's awesome. That is <laughs> America. America. That's awesome. Uh Osprey is the state bird of Oregon, though. So that was like a state showdown versus the national showdown. Like, yeah, state versus feds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. But yeah. today we're going to be talking about my dear friend, John Micah. Um, previously, we released an episode where I went into my background a lot, uh, you know, my childhood story and sort of the journey that life has taken me on, which included moving all the way across the country and, you know, finding faith in God after some really challenging years uh, throughout my childhood. And, um, you know, as we set that up in the previous episode, we were kind of sharing how we felt like it would be a great way to set context uh, for the audience um, so that you know more about us and know more about like the background and why we uh, think the way we think and the kind of the, the meaning and the impact behind some of the stories we're going to be sharing as we go on. And um, also we just want you to know that like we hear you, we see you uh, we've gone through a lot of these same things and um, we want to share that with you. So in that same spirit, we wanted to um kind of introduce you in a bit more personal way to the background of John Micah's story. 
Yeah, so I actually want to start out with my story by kind of starting more recently and then kind of go back to the beginning. Mm. Uh, about five years ago, I went through, um, I was going through just one of the toughest times of my life. And the last five years have been a, a process for me that I'm still going through and still sorting through. And yeah. Uh, started going to counseling and and a lot of things uh, over the last five years that I've been unpacking. And so as I talk through this story, there'll be some things that I'm still kind of working through. Yeah, so still in the middle of. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But that being said, about five years ago, I hit a spot where I was just miserable. And part of the misery was that I didn't feel anymore. I had no emotion. Yeah. I had no feelings. I, the world was just gray. Yeah. And it was a horrible way to live because everything like stuff I used to enjoy, I didn't enjoy anymore. Um, and there was also a lot of things that had happened that were negative, that some financial things, some family things, just struggles across yeah, the board. Some that stuff were, with touring. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and then with my kids that they were going through some tough things Yeah, and that all kind of culminating at the same time. I think I just, I began to shut down completely and it put me in just a really dark space. And so that got me to a place where I started to reach out to some friends and um, some pastors that I've known for years and years. And I was just yeah. like, man, I am not doing good. I don't know what to do. I've, <laughs> I've gone, I mean, my devotion books have gotten bigger and bigger. <laughs> I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying and I'm devoting. <laughs> yeah. Where yeah. is God? Right. He's not showing up. I am just getting more and more miserable and I don't know what to do. Right. Uh, and one of the guys that I, I talked to a few different guys and, you know, they tried to encourage me. And, um, one of the guys I talked to though, uh, was Darren Tyler, who was mm, our man, yeah. he's our manager for many, many years That's with right. Cutlass and he's still a good friend. He's a pastor down in Tennessee now. Yep. And he said to me on the phone, he said, you know, there's nothing that I can tell you that you don't already know like sure. from scriptures. I right. can give you some more scriptures. But he's like, I know you know those already. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think that you need to go to this intensive. He's like, I've done it. It changed my life. Mm -hmm. And I'd really encourage you to go to this thing. And it was a ministry called 10 Man Ministries. He said, I can get you connected with these guys if you're willing mm -hmm. to go. And I didn't really want to go, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I was in such a bad spot. I agreed to. And Do you remember how he described it to you on the phone? He, he just said that it was uh, like life-changing for him. And oh. um, it was interesting because actually while I was there, he and Shannon, my wife, talked. Yeah. And he made a comment. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. And Shannon told me this later when I got home. But he had told her, you know, you guys have always been really great shoulder to shoulder, mm. like working together. Mm. He's like, hopefully you guys will be great face-to-face -to -face together after yeah. this well you mentioned that part of the dynamic in your relationship together with Shannon in a previous episode actually yeah and so it was for him to kind of have this insight and in his own experience of going through it and just really encouraging me to go and um and, and I did and, and 10 man named their ministry after the 10 man from the wizard of Oz yeah. who wanted a heart mm -hmm. and they really kind of, they really kind of specialize in helping guys that were in the exact kind of spot that I was in, which mm -hmm. I didn't know this, but it happens to a lot of people that mm -hmm. get to that place where 
their emotions are shut off. They don't feel anymore. They're miserable and they don't know how to move forward in their life. Right. And it's catastrophic on your relationships and, um, on your faith. Um, I mean, there's so many things there that can be very, um, very bad if you continue to just spiral down that. And so that for me was like the point of changing to say, I need help and I need people that can help me that understand this and have been through things like this. And when I went, I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know what I was walking into, but realistically it was honestly the start of actually like licensed therapy for me (laughs) where Mm. in the past I'd always just gone to pastors or the church or the Bible or whatever to be like, well, these are the solutions to my problems. And I had hit a point where I, I needed clinical help. I really did. Right. But I hadn't really been willing to go there, maybe because of some of the stigmas and some of the things mm-hmm. um, attached to that, especially in the faith, Christian culture, uh, psychology and clinical therapy and counseling isn't always seen as safe. Like it's like, oh, it's kind of some of that stuff's pretty weird. And yeah, you they're going to kind of walk you away from your faith. Yeah. They have these other ways of dealing with your soul, but God is the authority on your soul. And so don't go to the world for that. True. The statements are true, but it's like, that's not really, it's not these ulterior motives of people that are trying to, uh, and maybe we can talk more about this later in the episode or on a future episode, but like, it's not people that are trying to change your beliefs, uh, especially your spiritual life beliefs, yeah. they're trying to help you see the dysfunction in your ways of thinking, especially the ways you think about yourself and to learn skills of how to get out of those corners that we, yeah. we get stuck in. And, and I, I kind of had dabbled in a few things here and there counseling wise in, well, no, just like clinical, like seeing my family doctor mm. about some things, sure. you know, and we'll talk more a, a little bit about that right. as, as I go back in my story, but I'd never really done like actual counseling therapy mm. with like clinicians and, and licensed people, yeah, licensed that, therapists. Um, yeah. And, and so this kind of opened up my world to that a little bit. And what mm. was interesting about it were the guys that were, you know, part of 10 men, they were all believers, Um, and when we first got there, they were like, you know, we're going to use scripture when necessary, but we're not here to teach you guys the Bible. Like most of you guys that are here already know these. And so (laughs) it's the same thing. I'm like, I know exactly. I I need something different because this isn't working, which sounds weird because I'm like, but it's the Bible, but I'm like, but I'm missing something. And, and that was the process of they began to kind of unravel some of those lines of thinking that were off that you can't see your own errors in your own line of thinking because that's, it's very linear in your own mind of this is this, therefore, you know, one plus one equals two in your mind. But someone else is like, well, you missed, there's a negative in there. It doesn't equal two because you missed something, you know, or your perspective warped how you got to your answer. And that's really where kind of, I realized these guys had tools that I hadn't interacted with before because Mm. they were, um, they, they had had training and they, they knew how experienced. To, yeah, yeah. And they were experienced as well. Yeah. And, and they'd gone through their own stuff too and their own counseling and therapy. So they'd experienced it firsthand for themselves mm-hmm. and they were able to share their stories as well. And that was super helpful just to set the tone for where we were headed. Um, but that was the beginning of the journey for me. And, and even now today I, I still meet with, um, a therapist weekly and he is a believer and, we talk about God a lot in those mm. sessions and how it relates to what I'm dealing with and going through in my life. 
Um, but I say all that because that was such a culmination to me that that was like the breaking point about five years ago where I realized that the stuff I had done my whole life and the way I had approached my life up until that point, that there was something in error there. Hmm. But what was so challenging about it was I couldn't see where the error was mm. because I all I ever wanted to do was the right thing mm -hmm. and I tried so hard to do the right thing I tried so hard to do things well and mm -hmm. I wanted so badly to do what God wanted for me and what God wanted for my life and and I felt like I really um, I really tried hard I tried so hard to do that and that trajectory led me to a place of just completely beat up broken f no feelings numb yeah i mean i was a just a empty robot you know i was that yeah. i was that 10 man with no heart yeah. <laughs> that wanted a heart and i go yeah. how did i get here why did i get here i don't understand and i'm just seeing broken pieces in my life all around me and fall out every direction i look at and i'm like god this is not what i thought like following you should look like like this all seems off because right. my relationships are not where I want them to be. My health is not where I want it to be. The, eh, my emotions and my soul is broken mm -hmm. and I'm going, you're supposed to be the solution to all of this. At least that's what I thought. And what in the world, <laughs> what yeah. the heck, where are you? What is going on? And so that for me was, it was, it was a pivotal shift. And, and really the last few years as I, as I've kind of gone through this, it's continued to be a very challenging season in my life. And I've changed a lot over the last few years. I've been learning a lot. I, I, James, that you've gotten to see yeah. and witness this firsthand. Yeah. Um, and it has been very hard, but I say all that just to give a little bit of perspective as I go back, because now I'm looking through this lens of, I realized that there were some things growing up that were off and I realized that I sacrifice things that I ought not to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest things though, that has been just revolutionary for me recently is I, I also felt very misunderstood in many of the things that I was doing. And I just never felt like, like people saw, and I'm going to use Cutlass as an, as an example. People saw yeah. the lead singer of Cutlass on stage right? and who that was and who that should be and who that person is and what they do. But they didn't always see me. Right. All they saw was my accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And so for my entire life, because I wanted so badly to do what was right, I always felt like there was a right way and a wrong way to do everything. And mm -hmm. I looked at the whole world through a very black and white lens. In every scenario, I'd be like, well, there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. I want to do the right way. And so I'd lean into that 100%. And the challenge with that was the Christian culture around me also puts pressure into that, like, do what's right choose the right path, choose the right path and God will bless it is kind mm. of the, I'm going to oversimplify it a little bit, but that's kind of the theme that you get a lot of times within the Christian sphere. Um, if you want God to bless your life, you follow him and it, the outcome is, you know, positive because you're following God. And, and I guess I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, you know, when I'm, when I was young growing up, I didn't really feel like I had a choice. And even recently I've realized this in my life where a lot of the things that I see in my life that I want to accomplish or do, or I set myself, you know, set goals for myself, there is no option to fail or to do something different hmm. because that would be not living up to 
what God wants for me or what the people around me expect from me or what the culture thinks I ought to be. And so there isn't, there wasn't this freedom to choose another path. If that makes sense. Um, I felt locked into this path that was almost set for me. And it, it was, it's really confusing now because I was in this place of, well, what did I set and what was the expectation placed upon me? And I, I can't yeah. always see the difference between those two. Yeah. And I, I also have, um, a pretty strong internal negative voice. Mm -hmm. Um, if you, you know, for people that are into the Enneagram or whatever, uh, I typically the, the one on the Enneagram scale is like the, the big one for me that mm -hmm. it's probably the closest. And, um, a lot of people there talk about like the internal voice that is like yeah. constantly driving you to do better. Nothing's ever good enough. You got it, you know, and the main line of thought being an obsession with perfection. Yeah. But it's, it's, what's interesting though, is it's not like, Oh, look how perfect I am. It's that it's no, I have to do, things I have perfect. to do things perfect. Yeah. And it's really oppressive. Like you yeah. become like actually like a slave to a it, slave to of. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think that's important now because as I look back on my childhood, if you know that about me now, that, yeah. that that is a part of kind of my makeup and DNA, I had a bit of the perfect storm growing up mm -hmm. and where a few things came together uh, that I think culminated in some really unhealthy things later on in my life. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Southern Oregon. I was born in 1980 in Ashland and um, spent most of my life actually just outside of Jacksonville. My parents had about six acres and grew up on property out there, which mm -hmm. I, I loved, um, loved being yeah, out in the Yeah, Jacksonville's beautiful. It's great, yeah. Such a fun town. Yeah, and I was, uh, you know, my, my parents, uh, they built this house when I was little and mm. grew up there. And my dad was a pastor um, at a church out there that mm -hmm. we lived like 10 minutes from the church from where we lived. And it was kind yeah. of out in the country. And he was the executive pastor of this church. And over the course of kind of from my infancy to high school, that church grew to be about 7,000 people. And, and in the area we're talking about population wise, how much at, at that time it's grown since then, but at that time, probably hundred thousand people or so wow. in the area. Yeah. And so when you have like, um, like almost 7% of the entire population yeah. that's attending one church, yeah. there's some gravity to that. It's, and yes. so my dad being the executive pastor was everyone's boss that worked out there and the staff. Right. I think at one point the staff was over a hundred people on staff wow. and wow. It, you know, it was, it was a big, big, a big church. operation. Yeah, yeah. Big operation. And my dad was the boss and a lot of things going on. Yeah. yeah. And so the classic, you know, PK, uh, pastor's kid. Yeah, there you go. That's pastor's kid yeah, for just, people like me who didn't <laughs> who grow know. up with that terminology. Um, it's like a known thing that a lot of pastor's kids, as they grow older, especially in their adolescence or teens, frequently rebel and totally are like, I don't want any of this. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm out. Right. Um, and it, it happens a lot and it's, you know, we, we can joke about it and stuff and it's yeah. common. But um, for me, I was like, my personality was not that way. No. I was like, okay, here's the expectation that people have of me, you know, as a pastor's kid and, and kind of in the bubble, so to speak. And I was like, okay, here's the expectation. I'm going to, I'm going to do one better than that. <laughs> mm. I'm going to overachieve that. And so I threw myself into, into that, um, right away. And I mm -hmm. think this started at a really, really young age for me. 
of this desire to please the expectation, but also like I talked about that inner critic and inner voice that I also had to appease. When did you start to feel aware of uh, any expectation on you and what that entailed and what it looked like? Yeah. So I, it, it's hard to tell when you look back. And I mean, of and, course, from outside your family, like from totally. The, yeah. From, from the church yes, and from, exactly. Yeah. From the culture, around culture, you, from the world around you. Um, and, and I was, I've thought about that a lot and, um, it's, it's, you know, there's so many gaps in my childhood, even that I'm like trying to remember. I'm like, gosh, mm. what was, what was going on there? What was I thinking about? Memory wise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's really some interesting gaps. Um, as I was working through therapy and some of the other things I was going through as I was talking through things and working through my childhood and my story. Um, one of the things that stuck out that I, I had, it had never occurred to me, but I was like, that's not normal. <laughs> Like that's mm -hmm. really unusual. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of my earliest memories I have. And I think I was about four years old or so, maybe okay. three or four. So pretty young. Um, and a common question that people ask kids that age is like, Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, yeah. like, Oh, that's cute. You know, I want to be that a time, fireman. I always said veterinarian at that time. <laughs> I, I would just wanted to help animals. I love that. animals. Yeah. yeah. Which is awesome. You know, or people would be like, I want to be an astronaut yeah. or a fireman or a policeman. Yeah. or I want to be a pro athlete, you know, whatever right. their imagination allowed them. Um, that sounded awesome to them. And right. You know, a three or four year old, they don't, it, there's no filter on that. They're just mm -hmm. like, I like this. It's awesome. Yeah. And I want to do that. But for me at that age, I decided I want to, wanted to be a missionary doctor. Okay. Which is like, that's curious. Yeah. <laughs> why, why did you want to be a missionary doctor? Well, in my mind. So explain what that is real quick, just in case people don't understand what you mean. There are, uh, physicians that dedicate their life to helping people in third world countries and places around the world that don't have great medical care. Right. Um, and they're basically missionaries that, you know, spend their lives in other places around the globe and they're supported by donations and people that get behind them and just say, right. Hey, we want to support what you're doing and help people that don't have the means to get good medical care. Right. So they want to be on the front lines when disaster strikes across the world. They want to go help people. Yeah. And there were like, you know, when in Haiti, when that earthquake happened, right. there was yeah. many of, of people, many people that were, there were a lot of like doctors and stuff too, that still work here in the States a ton. And they, you know, took time to go help people. Right. They but there's just, some people that vacationally that's their life and that's what they mm -hmm. dedicated their life to. And so it was like a three or four year old kid in my line of thinking, I thought, well, what's the most successful thing I can think of? Mm -hmm. I was like a doctor, right? Like doctors are smart. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, they, they have MD after their name. Right. <laughs> like they're like, they're successful. They make good money. They got to go to a good they school. Gotta, yeah. I mean, they yeah. have kind of all the check marks of success. Sure. From yeah. the worldly success, you know. Right. If you're, if you're trying to check all that off. But I was like, but that's not the most benevolent, like holy, godly thing you can do. <laughs> that's kind of like, if I'm going to be a doctor so that I can be successful, like, I don't know. But if I dedicate <laughs> if I forego all of the success and the finances and all the things to dedicate my life in the service of ministry as a missionary, you can't top that. Like that's the most benevolent, <laughs> yeah. kindest yeah. <laughs> thing yeah. you could to take all this success that you had and to leave it behind to help people around the world for the sake of the gospel and for God. Mm -hmm. And, and in my mind, I was like, you can't top that. Like mm. I just, I just won at both categories. Mm. Um, 
And now I, I'm like, gosh. And that was the motivation behind that answer? It, yeah, because I wanted to I wanted to check both those boxes. Mm. And again, because I see the world in a black and white, right and wrong, like being just being a doctor wasn't good enough because well, I wanted to do great things for the kingdom of heaven. I wanted to do great things for God. I want to dedicate my life to God. That's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. Mm-hmm. But if I'm dedicating my life to success, then I, I still didn't get the answer right. Meaning if I dedicate my life to success, I'm letting people down who expect me to try to be really benevolent and holy. I, I think there's a, there's a component of that because you feel that pressure. And if I give them a good answer, they're like, oh, that's benevolent and holy. Wow good job high five yeah and that's the reaction that you get so and i don't have to i don't have to explain to you like you know if i said i want to be a wall street banker because i can make a lot of money people be like in the christian space would be like okay yeah (laughs) you know but when you say i want to be a missionary people were like oh good for you wow (laughs) but if you tell someone in the mainstream world you want to be a missionary they're like what's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so I kind of like, and I know it sounds ridiculous, but as a young child, I was already trying to package this thing up where I'm like, well, wow. I've, I've got the answer for the person that wants, everyone knows what a doctor is and they'll high five you all the way through medical school going good for you. Yeah. You know, and mm. we, in the Christian sphere, everyone knows what a missionary is and they're going to encourage that and be, you know, like, Oh, that's great. That's great. So but, is there a part of you that felt like that was the most impressive answer you could give them because it checked both boxes? Yeah. And here's the thing is now when I look back to, I think I already had that internal voice saying, what's the best answer and is this good enough? You've got to really wow these people. Well, and, and for myself too, huh. I had to have a, I had to have huh. an answer to the voice in my own head that was saying, that's what, not good enough. What are you going to do that's great? Yeah. And I was like, I got it. I knocked it out of the park. I got all the check check boxes checked. Mm, wow. And and the you know, even the voice doesn't have a comeback for that, right? Mm. The the internal voice of, of my yeah. own yeah. kind of and so but that coupled with the pressures of the world around me and the Christian church around me, like those two things together are dangerous <laughs> yeah. because I'm yeah. trying to live up to my yeah. own expectations and I'm super unkind to myself. Mm-hmm. And then I have the pressures of the world around me that are going, Oh wow. Yeah. You, you know, you should look this way or you should be this way because you're a Christian, because you're a pastor's kid, because this is, you know, what a godly person looks like. Mm. And so I think that set me on a trajectory of what does success look like and what does a godly person look like? And in my very black and white and rigid world, I began to essentially create the equivalent of a spreadsheet of what succeeding Mm. at those things look like. And the, the great thing about a spreadsheet is you can quantify how well you're doing and you can check things off as you work your way down. Right. And so everything I threw myself into, I would give it 110% and I'd try and be the best at it of anybody that ever was, you know? And so I, and I remember again, when I was in fifth grade, uh, we had a 13 colony project or paper that we Mm -hmm. had to do. And it was on the 13 colonies. And the teacher said, you know, one time. And you were like, I'm going to do 14 colonies. Well, so he was like, (laughs) I had this one student that did a, I don't even remember the number now, but it was like 28 pages and it was this in-depth thing. And I was like, all right, it's on. I'm going to be the new, I'm going to do 35 pages, you know, whatever. Like I'm going to, I'm going to beat that 
I'm going to do it better because I'm, I want to do it the best it's ever been done. Hmm. But it wasn't entirely, I mean, everyone has ego, right? Like we all, sure. we yeah. all carry that ego and we like to be applauded for the things that we do. Of course. But what was weird about it to me was it was like to just do the minimum wasn't an option. Like I did not actually feel like that I could choose that. Like it wasn't within me to be able to do that. There was sounds like you couldn't even settle on doing what was adequate either. Not just the minimum, yeah. but like what was expected as like, this will get you an A. Exactly. Yeah. And so looking back on it now, I go, man, that is not healthy or good. No. <laughs> and, and yet it explained and helped me realize now so many of the things that I began to do in my life. Yes. Ego is always a part of it. Hmm. I like winning. I think most people like winning. Mm. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. It just is. And we like to be successful and we like to be pat on the back. And that's, that's humanity. That's human nature. It's normal. Right. But there was also this pressure and this, cause it was never good enough either. Right. Mm. No matter what I accomplished, uh, whatever hill I climbed, I always had to move on to another one to climb that and to climb the next thing and whatever that thing was. And so growing up, you know, um, it, it was a lot of things. It was athletics, it was school, it was music. Um, and so kind of my musical journey, uh, it is also an interesting one because it was, it was mixed in there between like just love of music and trying to get good at something. You know, and so I started playing piano when I was about five years old. Mm -hmm. I was classically trained. My mom played piano a bit. My grandmother was amazing at the piano and played in church and everything. And cool. um, so I kind of just started at home, started to get the basics and then started taking lessons and all the way up to recitals and, you know, kind of doing the whole classical piano train. Yeah. Uh, started doing worship on the piano. A, a guy at church showed me how to build chords. And um, that was like a whole new world to me coming out of... A, a rigid <laughs> coming out Sorry. of a rigid classical grew up uh, in the background. 90s <laughs> <laughs> uh music throwback music yeah and uh yeah so the piano was like something that i i was pretty rigid about practicing and getting better yeah. at and you know in the classical space but really it was funny because once i learned how to improvise again that was something new in my life there were no rules in improvisation and oh. so that was like actually a strange freeing place for me cool because there was no right and wrong there yeah like i mean you could play a wrong note outside of the key yeah but anything inside of the key was game on yeah and yeah. so you're not looking at a chart to read tempo yeah you're not looking for the way the stanzas are formed to complete the melody that's already you know given to you yeah and yeah. so that's one cool. of the very few things in my life that i can think of that there was no rules and no <laughs> right and wrong and no expectation I could just good old music yeah. coming through again. <laughs> and and so there was a love there I think that came from that and yeah. and something that was unique that was, you know, I don't know, maybe that was part of the trajectory of my life there taking sure. off. Um yeah. but yeah, so I, I went into high school and uh, or actually I guess before high school I uh I picked up the cello when I was about third grade, played that up until high school. Um I picked up the guitar when I was in middle school. And again, this is my kind of driven nature, but I broke my finger. Yeah. Uh, I had a playing a game at youth group and I was, I had a cast on my hand where, uh, my pinky finger and ring finger were casted together. And then mm. the cast went all the way up past my wrist yeah. and I couldn't play piano. So I was like, so your right hand, 
um, yes, right yeah. hand, okay. but I could, I could hold a pick. Oh, with, so finger yeah, and thumb. Finger were, and thumb. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Index finger and thumb were open. <laughs> it's like, Oh, I could hold a pick. Yeah. Maybe I'll learn guitar. So, uh, again, one of the pastors at our church was like, I'll show you a few chords. And so I picked up a few chords and strummed in my cast and that's how I started playing guitar. Mm. And, uh, same guy that worked with you at the piano. Uh, no, different. Oh, yeah. Cool. Diff- so a lot different. of musicians at the church. Yeah. Then. Yeah. There Very was, cool. um, there was, there was a few different, <laughs> a few different groups. Um, like the little Levites. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, uh, little Levites merch coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned the little Levites in a previous episode. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was my first worship band I was ever in, <laughs> which now that that's out there. It will forever haunt me. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. We're getting funny texts from the other guys in the band like, hey, can we start a side project <laughs> called the Little Levites? So, yeah, maybe. All one right. Of these so days. you're playing guitar because your hand is in a cast. Now you start playing guitar. You start learning yeah. chords. And... Um, and then that led to ultimately, uh, if you listen in a previous episode of when I met my wife, Shannon, right. Cause oh, I was yeah, playing yeah. worship on, right. I, or they the asked San me to Juan play on yeah, Salem Islands yeah. camp. And then I ended up playing worship on a bunch of trips, uh, with my guitar. And, um, and so music was always a part of my life growing up. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was still doing music. I, I quit kind of doing the classical stuff just due to time. Um, because in addition to athletics or in addition to academics in school, I was also very into athletics. Yeah. Soccer being kind of my main sport. Yeah. Um, I also did pretty well in track. And so and those some were karate too. Yeah. Yeah. I did some yeah. karate. Uh, <laughs> that was like middle school days, I think. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I never quite completed my black belt. I was one belt away. Uh, never quite. I, I should go back and finish. Would you have to start over? I don't, I don't think so. Is it like transfer credits to a new school? <laughs> I think I'd, I think I'd have to probably go back into the same system oh. and pick up, but I'd have to relearn everything. Yeah. To retest for it. And it's, it's been a minute. Karate. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, so in high school I did track, uh, did soccer yeah. and, um, it was, you know, 4.0 student for the most part. I think I got mm. one B in all of my high school. <sighs> time fail um yeah <laughs> did and, it feel like that oh i was devastated when i got really ready. yeah wow yeah because my perfect record had been blemished Tarnished. Yeah. yeah and i couldn't achieve the, the four point was gone right like oh. from here on out it's at 3.9999997 <laughs> you yeah. know or whatever yeah and uh yeah so but it was high school i think that around high school that i really started to realized that there was some physical things that were starting to affect me. Mm. And, um, you know, like, like I said, growing up in the church and we were, I mean, we were at church all the time and we had these, you know, I was just constantly kind of in the, in the bubble everywhere I went. I mean, I remember even in town, like just the grocery store at Taco Bell or anywhere, like we Mm. just, you knew people everywhere, you know, and Mm. people knew who I was because they knew who my dad was. And, uh, and so in that, in that, you know, as a high school kid, I was trying to balance all of these things and I couldn't let anything drop because in my mind I had to, 
I had to be the best at everything I could be. Because, I mean, that's what we're supposed to do, right? Do your best, 100% all the time. Mm. And I kind of bought into this ideology. And I, I think probably the first real major thing that was like, okay, something's wrong um, happened. I was about 14, I think. And at that time, my teachers actually like talked to my parents and they said, hey, John Micah's like picking at his head a lot like mm. it's unusual they noticed it and it mm. was like becoming a distraction and what i didn't realize then was i was actually developing an ocd called trichotillomania mm. yeah. and trichotillomania is a com obsessive compulsive disorder where you pull your hair out by the root and um i now i i found out that there's over 10 million people in the u.s that mm. struggle with this Right. And at that time, though, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a thing. And so over from the time I was 14 and then as I went into high school. This is um, like 1994 now. Yeah. At that time, probably not a lot of research about it. Well, and you don't know to search for it until you, I mean, I right. didn't, I didn't know what this was. I'm a 14 year old kid and I mm -hmm. just literally start pulling my hair out, you know, right. and just compulsively. And so my parents were worried about me and. Um, I, and I did go see a doctor finally mm -hmm. to go because what happened was I started getting these bald spots on my head because I would just yank out the hair, yank out the hair, yank out the hair and right. I'd get these bald spots. And so there were, you know, there was some concern there. So I was like, hey, we, we need to look at this. And uh, I did do some medication for a little bit with my doctor and I just wasn't nothing ever really seemed to work. Mm. And um, and I was really kind of hesitant again in the Christian culture, like medic, you don't need medication. You need God is kind of, and, yeah. and I say that flippantly, but like, that's kind of the, it's not said like that, but that's kind of the message Sometimes. That's oftentimes conveyed, you right. know, and I felt like something's wrong with me. And so to fix something that's wrong with me, well, God is who I should go to, to fix that. Right. But I didn't understand what I was actually dealing with or where this was coming from yeah. because my life looked pretty good. I mean, both my, you know, both my parents were at home. Things were decent, you know, and yeah. we had the all American family. We yeah. had a golden retriever dog and <laughs> a few cats. We lived, you know, out in the country and it, you know, I just go, man, like what is going on? I'm straight A student, play all these instruments. Yeah. You know, stuff's, we stuff's, go to a great church. Yeah. Stuff's yeah. going well. Yeah. And I didn't really comprehend that maybe there's something off in my life that is causing this compulsion to happen. Mm. And so that, that was something that I, from that point forward, I began to carry and I've carried it all the way until today. I still wrestle with it. Right. As a guy in his forties, I'm still dealing with this on a daily basis. Right. And, um, so the big, the big reveal there People are always like, oh, why do you wear a hat on stage? Or can I have your hat? You know, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we get that all the time. All the oh, time. can I have your yeah. hat? What most people don't know is that underneath that hat, I've got scars and bald spots and yeah, all over your scalp. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like normal male pattern balding where you kind of yeah. like have a receding hairline. It's like speckled and splotchy and looks scars. Yeah, yeah. it looks wrong. Yeah. And yeah. I actually remember when I was in college, I was in the dorms and again, I, you know, I played soccer. And so I remember this kid came in, walked into my room and I was sitting at my desk and he was standing kind of, so he was above me and he looked down, I was working yeah. on my computer and he looks down and he goes, Oh my gosh, what happened to your head? Did you get cleated in the head? Cause he saw like, 
he yeah. immediately thought soccer, like he must've gotten kicked in the head and cleated yeah. and, you know, and I was like, Oh, you know, it's so embarrassing to mm-hmm. have that very physical, um, thing that is out there that people can see. And it shows the dysfunction, you know, that there's something's wrong in your life. There's something wrong yeah. with me. And the, and so again, that internal voice being like, you need to get a grip on this. You need to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so I would try and white knuckle my way to like, all right, I'm going to get control of this thing. And I right. try and force myself to get control of it. And the irony was that the harder I tried, oftentimes the worse it got. Yeah. Just more pressure. Yeah. yeah. It, because it, it only added to the pressure. And so, uh, you know, that's been something that to this day, I still Do you remember the with. first time, um, maybe a medical professional put a name to it for you? Yes. It was while I was in high school. Mm-hmm. I saw our family doctor and, and he, do you he, remember how you felt about it? I, I, I felt ashamed. I mm. didn't want to see the doctor and I didn't want to admit something was wrong. And yeah. I hated that I even had to deal with this and I didn't know where it was coming from. I didn't yeah. want to deal with it. I just wanted to move on and get back to the things I wanted to do. And, but he was able to put a name to it and give us some information about it. And that's, that's when I found out that there were actually millions of people that deal with this, right. That I wasn't the only person. And, and I think that was good because at least I was like, okay, this is, I'm not the only person that does this. Like there's other people out there. And, and thankfully there's some people that actually eat the hair after they pull it out, which causes digestive problems. And so I'm very thankful yeah. that I didn't have that. And again, half of a, it. a compulsive behavior, compulsive. Yeah. yeah. So they pull their hair out and then they eat it. Can't help. Um, it. and that was another thing I had, had never heard of until, wow. Um, I became aware of just kind of this condition for myself. Did that make you feel like, oh, well it could be worse or did it make you feel resentful still just in general? Yeah. I, I mean, you just want it to go away. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like you just felt I, embarrassed. I, you and you at least felt like, okay, I'm not the only person, but I, I hate this. Yeah. And, um, and so this is honestly, this is the first time I've ever publicly talked about it. Right. I've never, I mean, there's a few people in my life that know about this, right? but this podcast is the first time I've ever been like to the world. Right. I have this condition. Yeah. Now, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so years later in Cutlass, as I'm on stage, there's this constant hiding in the midst of the spotlight. Ah. Right. Wow. Cause yeah. here we are, we're on stage in front of thousands of people. The jumbotron is like, <laughs> you know, with the video cameras, yeah. I'm, there's like your face, 30 feet 30 tall feet version yeah. of me. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, I'm like, if, if that jumbotron, if my hat flies off, all of these people see, you know, do you remember thinking about stuff like that on stage? Like, yeah, I would say, so there were a few seasons where I tried to grow my hair out and cover it up right. as best yeah. as I could. Yeah. I remember. And, yeah. um, cause I, I would have more success at, during certain seasons where I'd be able to grow my hair back out and kind of cover things up and I'd bleach it blonde sometimes cause it helped blend it a little better. Right. And there were some times I was on stage that I wasn't wearing a hat and I felt like I pretty much got it covered up, but I was like a little unsure. And then you, you jumbotron 30 foot tall version of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I hope, yeah. I hope it's not obvious. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that, that's been, I mean, to this day, I still, I hate it, but to a certain extent, you pretty much felt like you had to hide that the whole yeah, time. My entire life. I was constantly trying to hide it because I didn't want people to see it. Yeah. Um, and it's embarrassing. I don't want to have to explain it. 
and Mm -hmm. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And in the culture and the world that I lived in, there was, you know, we had reason. Not only do you have reasons for everything, we had a Bible verse for everything. It seemed like, right? Yeah. And so that was one of the things about growing up in the church was the church that I grew up in was a very strong Bible teaching church. Yeah. And I am very thankful for that. Like Mm -hmm. we really just dove deep into the Bible and and it wasn't until I got into college that I realized how in depth our Bible teaching actually was. Um, Because, you know, I'm going to school and there's these other kids that are going to, they basically are getting their degree so they can become pastors and they're going to go on to get their masters of divinity. And that's kind of the track that they're headed on. And I'm going to toe to toe with guys that are like seniors in the, in the Bible program at the school. And we're having conversations about context of scripture and going to the original translations in the Greek. And they're going, how do you know to do all this? I didn't learn this stuff until my third year (laughs) of of Bible school. And I'm like, I learned this stuff at church. You guys didn't learn. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like what? Oh, that's, that's not normal. <laughs> so we had, we had just a very, very deep knowledge of the Bible. Um, that was, it was, gr- it was great. I'm super thankful for it. Yeah. Um, but I will say knowledge in and of itself without, um, the proper application or the relational piece of how to use that knowledge, um, it can be, can be dangerous in and of its own. Yeah, And so I was using knowledge to guide my life, Mm -hmm. but I was in the process losing myself. And it doesn't necessarily help you feel closer to God, really. No, because I think I was, I was trying so hard to do the right thing and what the Bible said or, or how the Bible was taught to me, like, Hey, you know, these scriptures mean this, you know, the interpretation of different scriptures. Um, and you can get into different passages where brilliant theologians absolutely disagree. Sure. So, sure. Uh, sometimes we dogmatically say, well, the Bible said this and it's like, did it? Yeah. (laughs) Is that actually what it said? Or is that your interpretation of what it said? So there is that, and we have to be honest about that. But I, I really tried to take a very dogmatic approach in like applying the Bible to my life constantly because the Bible was truth and it was right. And therefore, if I followed it, it would be the right decision. And, and, and that internal voice you talked about earlier, what, what did that make you feel like when you were kind of engaged in these kind of debate or like deep, you know, discussions and arguments with these other people? I was so convinced that I had the truth, like 100%, like more than them. Yeah. If somebody didn't agree with me, I'm like, you're disagreeing with the Bible. Right. <laughs> it's kind of, it's the mentality, right? right? Like I have studied this. This is what the Bible says. This isn't what I say. Therefore, this is the truth. Yeah. And looking back on that, like I said, I go, is that what the Bible said? Or is that just my interpretation of what the Bible said? Yeah. And I was so convinced that that's what it meant, that it it was the truth, God's truth. Right. for the world. Right. And, um, looking back now, there's a lot of things I would say I was very dogmatic on in the past that I'm a much, I'm much, much less dogmatic about. Right. <laughs> and, and I think it's healthy and I think it's good. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, when we look, when we talk about the Bible, um, I do believe that the Bible is true. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think it, I yeah. think it gets taught and I think it gets used in ways constantly 
for other purposes. Or you also have to just take into consideration our American lens, that we read the Bible through the lens of people that grew up in America, right. that our life is different than the, wor- the rest of the world mm-hmm. has ever been. And our way of thinking is different. Like we've gotten to travel all over the yeah. world. And, and honestly, like kind of those American tropes of like, we can do anything that really does change the way that we see situations compared to how other people that grow up in different parts of the world totally see situations like we approach things entirely different because of that Americanness, totally. so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And so we read the writings of Paul and we forget that Paul wrote this to a group several thousand years ago that had a culture completely different than our right. culture that were dealing with completely different things. Right. And so when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he doesn't mean put that on your basketball warm-up jersey because we're going to win the championship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yet I went to a Christian high school for a few years. That happened. <laughs> Not yeah. exactly, but like yeah, those kinds sure. of verses got used. Yeah. It's the sign on the locker room. Everyone <laughs> slaps yeah. as they get, you know, walk out the door. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's like a motivational poster you put right. up on your wall. Like I right. can do all things through Christ who strengthens me great verse yeah that is not what paul was talking about and right before that he says i've been poor i've had plenty i've gone through it all good and bad i've been through all kinds of things right he's talking about parts of his life where he was shipwrecked or in prison yeah and he's like i can do all those things through christ who strengthens me i can get through all that yeah because of christ but no one puts on a t-shirt i can be shipwrecked (laughs) And bitten by a venomous and, snake yeah. and imprisoned through Christ who strengthens me. Right. <laughs> like we want to, we have the Americanized view that God will give us the strength to overcome anything mm-hmm. in like winning kind of. Right. Cause that's the right, American right. way. We, right. we win, <laughs> we got to win, yeah. you know? Uh, and, and, and there's something wonderful about the American perspective and like, yeah, we can absolutely. do anything because totally. we're one of the few countries in the world that, someone can rise from poverty to great success. And and it's the American story, right? The American dream story. And so, but you have to take that into consideration. We, we look at the Bible through that lens, right? And it can oftentimes warp the way that we interpret it, the way we apply it to our lives. And so I realize that now I think looking back, there's a lot of things that I thought was a bit more (laughs) clear cut and black and white that I'm like, I don't know if I had that right. Totally. Um, and a lot of it's the way that stuff is presented to you too. You know, you, you grow up in a culture and in a world and in a church and you're going to, you're going to absorb beliefs from a lot of different people that have a specific view on the Bible or things like that. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I, am thankful for many of the things I was taught and I'm also looking back on my life going, okay, there was some stuff that just simply probably wasn't right. And that's okay. Like none of us get it all right, you know? But to some be, of those things like paired with your personality kind of stuck in you. That's in a where it got dangerous too. Yeah. Because yeah. now I believed I had the right answer. So now I'm, now I'm going to die on that hill. Right. Even when I ought not to. Right. Because I'm like, this is not a hill to die on. And yet I'm like, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. And, and the thing was, is the person I was meanest to was myself. Yeah. I, I was the most unkind to myself because I saw myself as 
something, just my body and who my personality, who I am was simply a tool to accomplish great things in the world for God to change the world, to make a difference, to succeed. Uh, I did not give grace or space for me to exist as a human being in the world that has its own struggles and feelings. And I, I was constantly trying to torque myself back onto the right path, the right direction, the right win, whatever it took. Do you feel like that affected the way you extended grace to other people? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, if you can't be gracious to yourself, you don't even know how. Yeah. The interesting thing now too, is I realized I was really bad at receiving grace too. Mm. Because wow. I was yeah. uncomfortable with it. I didn't want to have to receive it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I would try to not need it. Because mm. if you can just achieve enough or do well enough, be holy enough, then yeah. you don't need as much grace. There is sort of this unspoken way of teaching that's common within church. And I think it's something that all of us churches need to take stock of and examine. Are we you know, in error, teaching and preaching a God who's less gracious than he proclaims himself to be because we preach grace, we talk about grace and we teach about it. But the unspoken sentiment behind it all is like, yeah, but you better never mess up. Yeah. You better never need that grace there. And from my experience growing up and even, you know, in the many years with Cutlass, yeah. What I saw most of the time was grace for the unbeliever who does not believe in Christ, right. who is lost in their sins. And we go, of course, you're lost in your sins. You don't know God. You don't, you don't yeah. know that there's a different way. Yeah. And so tons of grace for that. Yeah. You know, you could be way, way down the road of horrible, horrible decisions. Mm-hmm. Grace for that. Come to Christ. God will change you forgive you of your sins those things will fall away you'll become a new creation in him mm-hmm. now that you're the quote-unquote new creation in him mm-hmm. now you know better <laughs> and yeah. there's very little grace there yeah and what i saw and what i continue to see is anyone particularly in any kind of leadership role that even showed a hint of human frailty (laughs) yeah uh any kind of sinfulness or it was like immediately eliminated yeah you know and and ostracized and i mean there's story after story after story that i'm sure we could find of people that their entire world was their church yeah and something happened and they fell short and they lost their whole world yeah and they they're who they thought were friends, lifelong friends, people they cared about, they were cut completely loose and no longer felt welcome in those social circles. I mean, I've talked to guys that had to move to a different state because they were so broken from what happened in Mm -hmm. the community they were in and they just needed to start over. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's horrible. And that for someone like me, only puts more pressure on the don't screw up, be perfect. Yeah. Wow. Because there's no room to, for error here. Right. So when we're traveling in Cutlass and we're, man, we, I don't know how many denominations we've been in <laughs> churches that all have different perspectives. All of them, yeah. I think. <laughs> and they, and they all have different perspectives on what, a, I mean, 
what a Christian should look like. Yeah. What we should look like. And, and we've talked about even some of the people that picketed our shows because they thought rock and roll music was the devil. Right. But even those that would come to our shows and embrace our music, there was still, I feel like constantly, I mean, we'd get emails about how some of our lyrics were theologically incorrect, you know, mm-hmm. and you're like, uh, well, I'm just trying to share my heart and write songs that are meaningful. Like, like there's just anything that ever steps out of line. There's usually just very little grace for it. Yeah. From my experience. And that just adds to the pressure. And I think that's why, you know, to come back full circle to pastors, kids growing up in the church. It's, I think that's why so many of them rebel mm-hmm. is because they're expected to toe this line, to look a certain way, to act a certain way, depending on the denomination, dress a certain way. Um, and it's stifling and suffocating. Mm-hmm. But for me, I was like, well, what do you want me to do? I'm going to achieve it. And mm-hmm. one better. Wow. That was my response to that. Instead of being like, forget you, I'm out. I'm going to not do any of the things you're telling me to do. I was like, I'm going to do all of the things plus some Mm. just to prove that I did it all and did it well, you know? And again, a lot of that was the combination of the external pressures with the internal critical voice telling me like, you got to do better. You got to do more. But where I saw that start to really become a problem, like I said, in high school, I was, playing soccer. I was doing track. I was a straight A student. Um, and my sophomore year of high school, I started to really, um, I wasn't sleeping because I didn't have time. Hmm. I would literally stay up. We'd get home late from sports games or practices. Sometimes we'd travel far to play the game. We'd get back late. Um, I'd stay up all night doing homework. I'd get up at 4am the next morning to go lift weights before school. I'd come home after lifting weights. I'd read my Bible, do my devotions, finish up any homework studying I had to do, go to school, go to school all day. In the springtime, I'd go to track practice after school. After track practice, I'd go to soccer practice until dark. <laughs> and wow. then I would, I mean, just both sports. Yeah. And yeah. I was, I was overtraining. I was not sleeping. I was super unhealthy because I just had to do all of it. Yeah. And I went to state in track and I was on one of the best soccer teams in the area, in the country. Yeah. From what I remember. Yeah. Yeah, So, but my sophomore year, I started wrestling with, um, pretty severe depression Hmm. during that season. And that was kind of a new thing that was like, Whoa, where's this coming from? It was very uncontrollable. Um, my parents were very worried about me. I think at one point my dad, like we had some guns in the house and I think he hid those at one point just cause he was wow. that worried about me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, to just make sure I didn't have access to him at the end of that year, I ended up uh, school year. I ended up with mono. Um, and that was kind of just forced me. I had to stop. Yeah. And the doctor was like, dude, you just need to go home and sleep. Like no sports, no activities, just go home. And I was like, yeah, but, but well, golf's not strenuous. Can I golf? Like it's just walking. Right. And he's like, no, no, you cannot golf. Like you idiot. Like, come on. Um, and so, uh, so coming from, um, coming from that after mono, I was just like, man, I don't, I don't know, but I still had this, like, I needed to be productive and creative. And, um, so I learned how to juggle during, <laughs> during my mono <laughs> cause I just couldn't, couldn't deal with it. Mm. Um, my, send this guy to the circus. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my junior year, I transferred to the, to the public high school and, uh, our soccer team just crushed it that year. It was so fun. We ended up being state champions. 
Awesome. We were ranked 12th in the nation and just really special thing to be a part of. And, um, really, really neat. And, uh, so there were those moments, those high moments, and I don't regret that at all. Like it was awesome. It was a, it was a great thing to be a part of what was maybe out of balance though, was I was still, I was working at the church, you know, I worked first, I started, I worked at the grounds crew and then eventually got to work at the radio station and do these different things. And, and so I'm working on the weekends at the church. I'm still going to school, still doing multiple sports. And so I'm still running harder than I should. Um, but it's all working. Right. And I go to church and people are like, Oh, I saw you in the newspaper, you know, you scored a goal or I saw your track thing. You won districts. That's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, you know, awesome. So all the, all along people are like high-fiving and encouraging and going, you're doing great. You're doing great. I'm like, okay, (laughs) you know, let's keep going. And so it seemed like I was doing all the right things. Like I was being successful, but then I'm like in the dark, I'm dealing with depression. I'm dealing with an OCD and I'm like, and your body's getting sick and trying yeah. to shut down. And then I'm like, oh, let's not deal with any of that. It. Let's yeah. just get rid of all that. And let's just go do more soccer and more track and more. And I, I enjoyed yeah. those things, but I was, I was pushing myself way too hard. Yeah. And, uh, so I ended up, uh, when I graduated from high school, I got recruited to play soccer at Warner Pacific college. I got a phone call on my answering machine back in those (laughs) days from this guy with this British accent said he saw me play and he wanted me to come play for him up in Portland, uh, at Warner Pacific and, uh, ended up working out. He got me a full ride scholarship. And so here, here I was in college playing soccer and, um, that I mean, now I had this. I was a scholarshiped collegiate athlete. New expectation. Wow. Right. And so the sacrifice there, where once again I was not nice to myself, mm-hmm. but also because of my drive. And and this is common with athletes, I think, which is why the world is changing the rules right now on this. But I sustained numerous concussions playing soccer in college. And I'd had a couple prior to this, but you know, the more I got them, the easier I got them. Yeah. Um, I fractured my sternum. I dislocated my shoulder. Um, had, I've had over 20 concussions in my life now Mm. and it was radically affecting my body and my health. Mm -hmm. And my, didn't you tell me once that at one point, like you started to kind of notice you were losing some of your fine motor skills too? Yeah. In my, like my hands, I was starting to lose some fine motor skills in the hands. Wow. And which was kind of scary, you know, when you're I bet. college age and you're like, yeah. gosh, what are my fingers doing? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, and oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. And then more soccer. Yeah. Well now, I mean, it's been enough, like, like again, like the world has changed its perspective on concussions. It's a totally different world now than it was back then. Yeah. And it was starting to change while I was in college, but it wasn't like totally where it is today. And, uh, so these are things I've learned later. I didn't realize that was a multiple concussion uh, symptom at the time. I started to have memory problems. Um, I, I would memorize cause I was always, like I said, I was a straight A student up until this point. And then mm-hmm. I try and study for a test and I would be like, I know I studied this. And I, it was like, my brain was misfiring. I could not access the information that I studied and mm. I could feel it. I was like, ah, I know this answer. I, why can I not, why can I not recall it? Mm. Like what is happening? And so I went from cramming for tests for a couple hours the night before and acing them to I'd study, you know, 13, 14 hours for a test and exam. And I couldn't remember what I studied. Wow. It was 
bonkers. And I was, yeah. and then, that, so that again, with my personality, I'm like, well, maybe I need to study more. <laughs> you yeah. know, that's my problem. Not that I kept hitting my head. Like that couldn't be the issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So my sophomore year in college, I fractured my sternum and, uh, like halfway through the season or partially through the season and, uh, went to a, they, they didn't realize it was broken. I went and saw a chiropractor and he did one of those tuning fork things to like check to see if the bone is actually broken. And mm-hmm. it's supposed to hurt really bad when they put it on there, I guess, because the fracture with the vibrations from the tuning fork and it didn't do anything. So they adjusted my ribs because mm-hmm. the ribs were out and I had a fractured sternum and it no, was no, no, no. so painful, Yikes. so painful. Uh, it didn't, I, I still felt like something was wrong. So I finally went to a doctor and I was like, Hey, I need to get an x-ray. Like I'm playing college soccer. And he was like, he kind of had, the, he kind of like brushed me off. Like you're fine. Cause I wasn't acting hurt, you know? And, um, but I was like, no, I just, I just need to know for my coaches and my trainer and everything. And he's like, okay, fine. So we did the x-ray. He comes back in kind of sheepishly and he's like, yeah, you have a fractured sternum, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which when I did that, I did it playing soccer in a game. I also got a concussion when I did it. And, uh, and so he it's like hitting another player. Yeah. I ran into another player. His shoulder went, I was going in for, we both ran in for a header and his shoulder went into my chest and then my head hit the top of his shoulder. And that's where the concussion came from. And the impact was big enough that it fractured my sternum. Um, so, uh, yeah. So the doctor's like sheepishly like, yeah, you fractured your sternum. Like, mm. <laughs> uh, you need to not play for a while. And, but they can't really cast that cause it's the, in the body. They gave right. me kind of this like bandage that kind of wrapped around my chest for support, but it really didn't do much. Cool. And, uh, <laughs> so he told me though, I was like, well, can I play? And the doctor's like, well, I recommend that you don't. Uh-huh. Um, he's like, I know it's not like a broken leg where you can't run on it cause you yeah. can still run just fine. He's like, but if you get hit in your chest again, you have a broken, a fractured sternum that is not connected right now. So it will move those bones and behind your sternum are a lot of really important vital organs. Yeah. And so if you get hit there again, it'll push those bones into your chest cavity and that can be really bad. Right. You can puncture things that can kill you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And he said, and if that happens, then not only do you run that risk of like, you know, rupturing a lung or something too, but uh, we have to put it back in place and then wire it together. It's like mm-hmm. an open heart surgery almost when yeah. they wire that shut. And he said, you're in a body cast for like months, like full on can't move body cast gnarly. He's yeah. like, you don't want that. I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll take some time off. So I went back, took two weeks off, which <laughs> normally, normally a bone break is like six to eight yeah, weeks is right. kind of normal. Uh, I took two weeks off and then I started playing again. And uh, I was very nervous about my chest and like constantly protecting it. And, uh, I remember my coach like getting frustrated, especially on defense. He'd be like, what are you doing? You know, don't stab at the ball. And my assistant coach would be like, coach, his chest broken. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. And he'd like cuss or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, yeah, so I finished the season and, you know, played kind of hurt for most of it. And mm. at the end of the season, my coach called me in his office and he said, you know, Hey, uh, how'd you, how'd you feel like your season went? And I said, man, I, I, I struggled a bit. I felt like I played hurt. felt like I wasn't a hundred percent. And again, I wasn't living up to the expectations that I had in my own head. Mm-hmm. I looked at the season and I was like, well, if I wasn't hurt, I could have crushed it this season. And so in my mind, I didn't do great. And the mm-hmm. voice inside my head was like, eh, it was okay. 
But what I neglected to mention there was I was still the leading scorer on my team, Mm. even after being hurt and all of that. Wow. And so my coach says, well, I thought you had an amazing season and the coaches in this league thought you had an amazing season and your first team all conference Wow! and wanted to let you know. And here's, yeah. you know, I got a little piece of paper award, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, uh, looking back on it, I'm just like, man, like it's still like in my mind, I didn't, I was kind of surprised cause I was like, I wasn't good enough. And, um, and yet I walked away with these accolades and stuff too, but I didn't even care. Like it was cool. I was like, uh, you know, you're like, awesome. I got first team all conference. That's cool. But it wasn't an ego thing for me at that moment. It was like, I wanted to be the best I could be. And I wasn't the best I could be because I was broken, but I still had to live up to my team needed me. I was one of the main players that was, I had to help carry the team, you know, like, which is so just crazy because they didn't need me to carry the team. <laughs> Not really. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's why you have other players on the team. Oh, oh. <laughs> but okay. there's this. <laughs> and again, like I said, it wasn't ego though. It was like this right. responsibility. It was this like expectation that I've got to step up and I've got to be the guy. Again, it was like, you felt like you didn't have a choice. Yeah. I have to, I have to, cause there's all these people expect they need me back and, they're expecting me to play and, and I want to play. I like playing and I want to be in, in the thick of it. And I hate being out. And, uh, and so, yeah, so many of the concussions too, that I sustained during college, I never told anyone I knew I had a concussion. I just did my best to figure it out on my own. Cause I wow. knew, I knew they would sit me if they found out. You know, and so I just play through injuries and I'd play through stuff. That's so dangerous. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but again, I cared more about the outcome than myself and my body huh. and taking care of me because I didn't matter to me. What do you mean by the outcome winning? Yeah, I needed to, I needed to win. I needed to live up to the expectations. I needed to check all of the boxes because those boxes that were on my spreadsheet, so to speak of what the right thing or the best thing was in order for me to fulfill those, I could not be kind to myself. Mm -hmm. I had to give everything in order to get those boxes checked. And so in the pursuit of that, of being like, you know, I got to do all these things. I completely neglected my own health and my own body. Yeah. Um, in a very, very real, uh, very yeah. physical way in that season. And at the time I just was like, Oh, I just want to play soccer and play hard and win, you know, you, Hope play good and you try to play good. <laughs> I knew you were going to quote bedazzled. I knew it. <laughs> I think we played pretty good tonight. I think we played pretty good tonight. <laughs> so the, uh, the, the insanity of it though, looking back now where I go, what, why, what was I thinking? Like, why did I care? Like it, it's not, I mean, obviously everyone likes to win and to be a part of a winning team and, and, we're encouraged to play hard. And when I coach my own kids in sports, I'm like, yeah, play your best, give it your best, but don't, you know, the problem was, is I lost myself to that. Or I, I, I wasn't, I was willing to sacrifice more than I ought to. Um, and the irony is there's so many people I think I've seen now in my life that had a healthier balance, um, that did super well, that were totally successful and didn't cost them everything to get there. You know, mm -hmm. um, and so I think for me, it was that it was the combination of that kind of internal struggle with the external pressure created this just 
perfect storm mm. that throughout my life became a theme. Um, and it really, as we got into cutlass years and pursued, and that for me was mission minded. It was like, I want to change the world. I want to reach people for Christ. We're going to do music to do that, use music to do that. And the people that suffered the most from that, I think in my life was my family because mm. I was running too hard. I was not being kind to myself in how hard we were running oftentimes, right. but they were stuck running with me now right? because they're my family. Mm-hmm. And now I look back and I realize what it cost them and they didn't have a choice because they were on the same boat with me and I was the motor was stuck on my boat and I didn't feel like I could had a choice to turn it off either. Mm. And cause I had to do what God called me to, I had to pursue this calling, this vision, this thing. And I was willing to die on that hill to give everything for the calling. And somehow that felt noble and righteous and good and right. And all along the way, people are applauding it. Mm. They're, they're going, you're man, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing so much for the kingdom. You're doing so much for God. Mm -hmm. You're changing so many lives. And meanwhile, my family, my wife and kids are like, uh, (laughs) Hey, what about us? Mm. You know, at, at times. And they were, gosh, so gracious in just hanging in there with me for years. But I'd say most of the regrets now are, they're my regrets of like, I could have done better. And some of the hurts and the challenges we went through, I, I wish that, that they didn't have to deal with, you know? And I, and I think I take responsibility for that now. Um, but all that to say, so through all these years, there was just a lot of things that I realized now looking back that the way I looked at the world, I was sure was right. And I had scripture verses to back up why I was right. And I gave myself 110% to that. And what I realized about five years ago is that I had built a transactional relationship with everything in my life. It was a goal oriented, performance oriented relationship with everything, including God. Mm. And so I was trying to please God by doing things. And I had the same mentality as my own goals of, well, God wants this from me. Therefore I must do X, Y, Z. And that is such a religious, Mm. legalistic way of having a relationship with God. Right. And I didn't see it that way. I'm like, no, I'm all about relationship. It's all about, you know, being in a relationship with God. But what I was doing on a daily basis in the way that I was practicing it was, well, what does a good relationship look like with God? Well, it looks like I'm reading my Bible. looks like I'm going to church. looks like I'm praying. looks like I'm doing ministry. looks like I'm sharing the gospel with other people. looks like, check, check, check. What else could I do <laughs> on this? What else can I add to this list? And um, I just didn't see it because my whole world from the time that I was three or four years old had been built around this idea that there was a best way mm-hmm. and there was a right way. And it looked like this. And I had a very dogmatic view of it. I had scripture to back it up. And, and I think a lot of it was influenced by the biblical church and culture that I grew up in, which there's some very good things there. So I don't want to like say that that's all bad, right? but it put me on a trajectory. It gave me the tools, uh, scripturally to support 
my own insanity <laughs> in a certain way. And that led to brokenness in my life that I'm still dealing with today. It led to OCD. It led to depression and anxiety. And, 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 and there were other things that contributed to that. There were traumas that happened on the road that of things that happened to us oh, that yeah. were life altering. Yep. Um, and you, you pile those on top of the other pressures that are already there. Right. And, and that's when ultimately about five years ago, I just came to my breaking point of, um, I, 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 I was done. I was just numb. And I realized though, that I haven't allowed myself to feel to be anything other than the trajectory of the path that I thought was set for me. And I do feel like in times, like I look back and I go, I feel like I was handed a script when I was four or five years old talking about being a missionary doctor of this is what a good Christian looks like. This is what a godly man looks like. This is what a godly husband looks like. This is what a successful career looks like. This is what a good athlete looks like. Now go do it. Mm. And I spent, did you feel like you didn't know how to feel anything outside of that script? There's no room for feelings there. There Mm. is only do. Yeah. And feelings are a weakness that distract you from the goal. Mm. You know, cause if I, if I break down into my feelings, I'm like, well, I'm not getting stuff done. I don't mm. have time for these feelings. I need to, I need to move forward. And I mean, by and large, in a, in a lot of, I don't know, just social circles, I'd say for the most part, like when somebody is actually really showing their emotions, we tend to oftentimes be like, what's that guy's problem? <laughs> Sure. You know, like, man, he's, uh, he's, he's kind of touchy feely. Like what's his deal. And, and some of that I think is again, masculine American culture. And I think some of that is again, Christian culture where we're like, we ask people how they're doing and we don't actually want to know how they're doing. Yeah. And if, yeah. if they tell you how they're, how you're, how they're doing and it's <laughs> not good, you're like, whoa, yeah. You're like overshare, yeah, please, please don't share. <laughs> yeah. You're like, but you asked me how I was doing. So I think it's a combination of those things. Yeah. Um, but all, all that to say, I, I'm very thankful for some of the things that I was able to do and to be a part of. Mm-hmm. I think that the cutlass years were incredible. Um, I got to experience some wonderful things with my sports teams and we had a lot of victories that were super fun. And, uh, you know, I've got some good friends that I've met along the way, but I've also got a lot of regrets. And mm-hmm. so that, that pursuit of perfection throughout my life was laced with brokenness, but that brokenness wasn't ever allowed to be seen or dealt with or shared, but I've carried it my whole life. And I think the emotions were suppressed my whole life. I wasn't allowed to feel, I wasn't allowed to, to be a holistic individual. Hmm. And I think that people in positions of authority and power in the church, particularly pastors, leaders frequently find themselves, I think in a similar position where there is no option to be human. There is only the option of what is expected of you from the congregation, from the culture, from the Bible, for what God expects of me. And we put this incredibly heavy, heavy, heavy pressure upon ourselves to be something that we simply can't be. Yeah. No human being can be this, perfect thing. And then when we try to, what we get actually is a projection of who we want people to think we are, what we the kind of hmm. projected image of this is who sure. I am. And so 
For me, there's a piece of it where I feel like there's people that have known me for many, many years and they don't know me. They All they know is Cutlass and they know my athletic background or they know, you know, these different parts of what I did, but they don't know me. When you were making that your primary character that you showed to the world for so long, did you even feel like you knew yourself? Well, and, and that's what I'm realizing now is... Uh, I spent so many years defined by what I did that I'd, I, I think that was my identity mm. was I, cause I, and this is where it gets really slippery because I go, I am a Christian. I am a godly man, or that's what I want to be. Yes. So then I was like, well, what does that look like? Here's the, here's the, here's the do's and don'ts <laughs> do, 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 do. See, now I am a godly man, a godly husband, mm-hmm. a follower of Christ. And here's the evidence because I did all of these things. Mm-hmm. So the, the identity gets wrapped up in that of like, well, look, I'm crushing at this. So therefore I am this, I'm doing really well at soccer. Therefore I am a soccer player. You know, I'm an elite athlete or whatever, you know, whatever it is that you're checking off those lists that becomes your identity. And I, and I think for me, um, those things kind of rolled up into this. That's who I was. It was what I did. So the problem is, is if you take away what you do, what happens when you can't do things anymore mm-hmm. because your life cripples you in a way that you can't go pursue any successes anymore mm-hmm. because you're not healthy enough to. And so you have no more dues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who are you now? And I'd say that's kind of where I'm at today is not that we've accomplished everything there is to accomplish in life, but we've accomplished a lot. And there's, I don't have a lot of hills in front of me going, I need to go climb that hill right now. Mm. I'm going, I need to learn how to just be who God created me to be without all of the do. I'm really good at the do I've done doing, doing that my whole life. I've been killing myself to do that. I've been killing my body to do that. I need to step back and go, who am I without the do? Who am I that God created me to be? And who am I when I'm just being with God? not doing anything for God, not trying harder for God, not trying to prove to him that I'm better, not trying to prove to anyone else that I'm, you know, doing things for God, just be me and God. What is that like? Yeah. (laughs) You know? And I thought I knew, cause I I thought I had this, I was like, I'm doing devotions. See, God and I are hanging out. Right. But there's still this pretense of like, I'm still on I'm checking a box. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in the do. And so I think where I'm at today is now I'm trying to learn how to, and you hear this in, in circle, you know, therapy and things like that to, but to be present. Um, yeah. And in the to moment, learn how to be present with yourself with myself, but also with others yep. because I was always so driven about the do and the, and the goal and the aspiration of where we're headed and what, what we need to accomplish that I was never good at being in the room present in the moment, which did not allow me to be very empathetic, gracious, to be a good friend. A lot of times to be the kind of friend that people need when they're hurting, because yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's great. You're hurting, but we're going over here. We're going to accomplish this. Yeah. And you'll feel better if you keep moving this yeah. way because we'll win over here and then you'll feel better. Yeah. Um, or you're hurting cause you're not doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah. So here's what you need to change and then you'll feel better. Yeah. And instead of just being like, man, I'm with you. I, I get it. 
let me sit here with you. Yeah. So learning how to be with myself, to be with others, but then also to be with God with mm-hmm. no pretenses. I don't have to do anything to just be. Mm-hmm. And, and that I think is somewhere in there is discovering the true power of grace. Yeah. True grace. Right. Not like, not this, you did something wrong and I forgive you, but like you, all of you, good, bad, imperfect, the OCD side of you that you don't want anybody to see and the championship athlete that you like that people you, seeing. That you do want everyone to see. All of you. Yeah. Be with me. Yeah. As you are fully integrated, all of those pieces together, just be, you don't have anything to prove. Mm-hmm. God created me the way that I am. He loves me the way that I am. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to prove to him anything. Right. And yet in every, everything I do, I'm like, what if I'm not doing things, then what do we have? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's been a real challenge for me to be able to learn how to move through life in a different way. And I don't think, I'm not saying it's bad to create goals. I think those, I think that's a good thing, you know, and, and we still will write down things we want to do or accomplish or help solidify a vision with goals, writing them down on a whiteboard or whatever. And, mm-hmm. um, you and I've done that together, yep. you know, and I think those are good. But when we begin to define our lives by the wins and the losses and the do's and the don'ts, and that can, it, that can be a slippery slope. Yeah. And obviously like there are things in life, like the 10 commandments exist for a reason, <laughs> you know, don't murder. It's bad. It's, there's some do's and don'ts there that are still really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but just like the Pharisees in Jesus time, when you start to take those do's and don'ts and you add a little bit to it and add a little bit to it and add a little bit to it and you lose yourself in that, um, you miss the whole, the whole big picture and the whole point you miss God, I think, yeah. and his graciousness and his love and his kindness. And, um, so yeah, so I, I, at this point in my life, I feel like I'm relearning how to exist as a human being on this planet. <laughs> um, and win or loss broken or, or healthy, uh, is irrelevant in God's economy and to me as a person. Yeah. And so, um, still have a lot of things I want to do. I want to do good in the world, but I don't have to do good. If that makes sense. Like you get to, I get to exactly with him. Exactly. And when it's a have to, that can be suffocating. And I spent a lot of years there and it, it nearly crushed me. Yeah. Um, and it clearly had massive effects of, on me physically. And, uh, so yeah, so I'm trying to get healthy, trying to grow, trying yeah. to learn. And, uh, yeah, I hope maybe my story will help other people that wrestle with that or have been through that, or maybe yeah. you have that same really negative voice in your head saying that what you're doing isn't good enough and you need to do more and you need to do better. And I, I hope maybe you hear this and know that you aren't defined by what you do. You are defined by a God that says, I love you just the way that you are. And I created you and learning to just be with him and with other people, uh, is one of the most valuable things that I hope that I can pass on to people after not doing it for years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm trying to learn how to do it better now today. Uh, my own journey. I hope that helps people. And, um, yeah, 
so thanks for thanks for listening that's a great reminder to really examine in a deep and personal way what God's grace is really like and how it impacts each of us. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Let me just say, as your friend, I have watched you go through a lot of these things and you do good in the world and you have done good in the world. And so many thousands of people have been touched by your life. And I think that that is true about who God is too. In spite of us, he works uh, in mighty ways in our lives, even when we're sitting there ignoring his grace and, and, you know, trying to convince ourselves that we're not broken. So I think that your story and um, being honest about the struggles you've had and the ways that you have been thinking in life that don't line up with how God thinks about you are a great reminder to people to know that God is gracious and, and to really uh, spend time with him asking who he proclaims himself to be in their lives. So thank you everybody for listening to today's episode of rock in a hard place. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, leave us some comments, yeah. give us some good ratings on the, on the review scale. You know, that helps our podcast get out there to more people. Tell more people, tell your friends yeah. about it. And if something that was shared on here spoke to you, feel free to shoot us an email about it. We'd love to hear your stories as well. And, um, that's, that's why we're doing this. We're, uh, we're hoping it makes a difference. So that's right. Thank you guys for listening and we will see you next time. We'll see you next time. God bless you guys. Thank you.